I was born in August of 1968. There were a lot of things happening in our country in 1968. The Vietnam War was raging, the space race was underway, the Apollo missions were flying people to the moon. There was a lot of social discord in the 60s, many of you know that. There were just all kinds of different things that were taking place. Within the church, there was an interesting thing happening as well. The glory days of the tent revivals were wrapping up. By the end of the 1960s, these things that had been staples around our country were kind of coming to an end. So when I was born in 1968 and the glory days were, were wrapping up with those tent revivals, I wasn't going to have many opportunities to be a part of them. Though interestingly, for the next 30 to 40 years, even after I was born, there were still a few of those tent revivals happening. So I had the opportunity to go to a few of them, even preached at one and prayed at a couple of others, but I really wasn't a part of them. We have some folks in this church that I'm positive remember what those were like, lasting two and three weeks in different communities. Denise, you're smiling. Do you ever go to a tent revival? You know what we're talking about. Betty Ward, I'm guessing you went to some tent revivals, and you know what those were like. They were an exciting time in the life of the communities where the evangelist would bring the tents and set them up. They were exciting in the life of the church. Ostensibly, they were done to carry the gospel to places where the gospel had never been. When they started in the 1800s, that was the purpose. These evangelists, these preachers, missionaries would go into these different places on the frontier, like in Ohio and Kentucky, and that was considered the frontier during the early days of the revivals, and they would, they would bring the message of salvation into these places, and people would respond. They would respond. It was an impressive time in the life of the church and in the life of Christianity, particularly here in the West. They did what they were supposed to do. When they started, it was so pragmatic. Get the gospel onto the frontier. Carry the message of Jesus to people that had never heard it before. By the 1960s, the purpose of the tent revivals had really been boiled down to two. To stir up the redeemed. To bring a message of fire and brimstone and repentance to the saved. To make sure that they stayed on the right path. And then to present a message that would capture the attention of the unsaved so that they would want to join into the local church. It worked. It just worked. In the early part of the last century, there were preachers like Billy Sunday and Billy Graham and Oral Roberts that were mainstays in the tent revival movements. Their names were indelibly etched in that. Billy Sunday, it is reported, led a tent revival, or it was sometimes called a camp meeting in Boston. He was there for 10 weeks. Can you imagine a 10-week revival that reached over 1.5 million people? 1.5 million people in the 1920s. 65,000 of those 1.5 million responded to Billy Sunday's invitation and they walked his famous sawdust trail down to the front of what he referred to as his temporary tabernacles and they gave their lives to the Lord. By the 1950s though, Billy Sunday was gone but Billy Graham and Oral Roberts were still preaching and the tent revivals were losing their steam. 
because of, are you ready for this? Television. Television took the place of the tent revival. Television was now carrying the gospel to people that had never heard it before. And the tent revival just began to go away. Like I said, it continued to struggle on for the next 30, 40, 50 years. And even today in parts of the Midwest and predominantly the South, you'll still hear about a few places that are having tent revivals. But for the most part, they're gone. There's a part of me that thinks that's kind of sad because of the energy and the excitement that they brought into communities for the sake of the gospel. But as I read the Bible, particularly the writings of the Apostle Paul, I am more and more convinced that he would have been a huge fan of tent revivals because he did exactly what they did. He would carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to people that had never heard it before. And he really had two purposes, to stir up the redeemed, make sure they remained on the same path they were already on, and to win the hearts of those that had never responded to Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul did. And he did it in places that no one else had ever gone. And there are several books in the New Testament, when you read them, letters of Paul, that are a reflection of a tent revival. For the rest of this summer, I want to show you a couple of those books. First and second Thessalonians, to be exact. They are often overlooked, and they shouldn't be, because there's some incredible stuff in them. If you have a Bible with you, why don't you open up to that first book, first Thessalonians, just so you get a good feel for what we're going to be looking at. I'm going to ask you to keep your finger there because we're going to start in the book of Acts and then come back to 1 Thessalonians. But go ahead and turn there just so you are familiar with how to find it in your Bible, so you're familiar with where it's at and you can start looking at it. My encouragement to you is to read both of these letters. They're called epistles, but they're really letters. Read them over and over and over again so that you'll be familiar with what the Apostle Paul is talking about. As I was putting the messages together and just starting to look at it, I wanted to find a a title for this series that would capture everything that we're going to be talking about. And the only one that I could arrive at is right above me. The word faithful. It comes from the, the first letter. It comes from the fifth chapter of that letter. That's where this word faithful comes from, but it captures the essence of everything that Paul is writing about. Now, now that you have your Bible open and you're looking at those two books, let me just remind you that they really are letters. We call them books, but they really are letters. Because they sit towards the end of our Bible, most people want to believe that they were written towards the end of Paul's life. That's not true. They were more than likely the first two letters he wrote. So they were written at the beginning of his ministry, his apostolic ministry, not at the end. They are a bit different from the letters that he wrote to Timothy because of that. Paul, when he went into this community that had never heard the gospel, he did an amazing work right in their midst. He really did. He won an exorbitant number of people to Christ for the first time. He planted a church from the ground up where there was no church. He taught a remarkable amount of biblical doctrine to them, what would become biblical doctrine. 
He confronted some wrong thinking in their community, and he gave all of these people a hope that they had not previously had. That is the hope of eternal life. We'll come back to that in just a minute. And all of that happened in an amazingly short period of time. Keep your finger there in 1 Thessalonians, but join me in Acts chapter 17, and I'll show you how it all started. This is the tent revival, if you will. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Well, let's just keep going. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come join him as soon as possible, they departed. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? That's how it all started. Now, catch some of the highlights out of that. Paul was only in Thessalonica three weeks. Three weeks. Tent revival. Three weeks. Now, there are a lot of scholars that say that all of those things that we just listed that he accomplished could have never been done in just three weeks. So some of those scholars want to tell you that he was there at least three months. But the Bible is pretty plain about it. He was there three Sabbath days. He was reasoning in the synagogue for just three weeks. But people were flocking to the gospel, so much so that they were disrupting the entire community. He was bringing a transforming message through Jesus Christ into this town of Thessalonica in such a way that the people that had lived there a long time didn't like it. They wanted to stop it. So when they couldn't find Paul, they started attacking the man who was housing him. Paul was just staying in Jason's house. But if we can't find Paul, we'll take you. 
So they drug him out into the streets and they caused all this disruptive behavior. And even after Paul left, they were so stirred up by what he had done in their town that they went to the next town that Paul was in and they caused problems there as well. They didn't like the message he was bringing. They didn't like the fact that Paul was telling them some things that would change everything about what they had believed, who they had become, and the way that they were living. Paul was accomplishing what God called him to do, and he was doing it under God's power so strongly that it only took three weeks to establish this stronghold in Macedonia. Now, if you really want to understand the significance of what we're going to be looking at, then you have to understand historically what this place really was. The city itself, the community, was known as Thessalonica. That's the name for it. We refer to them as the Thessalonians because they were from Thessalonica. It was a Roman colony. That's the best way to say it. When the Romans would take over an area, they didn't move in and demand that people change. They didn't try to turn everyone's thinking by force. They colonized an area, which means that when they took over this land from the Greeks, they moved a bunch of Romans into the area and just let the Romans live as Romans. That's, that's what they really did. So they brought their clothing, they brought their food, they brought their arts, they brought their music, they brought their culture into an area, and they just lived it. The reason they did that, it's pretty funny actually when you boil it down, the Romans believed that everybody wanted to be Roman. So for them, just to come and live among the non-Romans as Romans would live, they believed, and they weren't necessarily wrong, that everybody else would follow suit. In America, it would look like this. The people from New York or Los Angeles believe that everybody wants to live the way they do. At least they did until a couple years ago. So the trends in the United States of America would follow what was happening on the East Coast or the West Coast. The Romans had the exact same philosophy. Just live among them and they'll want to be like you. And they weren't wrong. So Thessalonica was a Roman colony. Here's a few other things you ought to know about it. It was the capital of Macedonia. During Paul's time, there were 200,000 people that lived there. Most of the people were Greek, but there were also Roman citizens. The city had a strong Jewish minority. That's why Paul went to the synagogue and reasoned there, and that's why you hear the Jewish thread in Acts chapter 17 rising up the way it did. It's one of the few cities that survives from the New Testament era today. You can still go to Thessalonica. Today, there are roughly 300,000 citizens. It's a significant industrial and commercial city in Greece and is second only to Athens in population. It served as an important allied base during World War I. In World War II, it was captured by the German army, and the Jewish population of about 60,000 people, pay attention to this, were deported and exterminated. Now, there's a group of folks today that, that would like to tell us that that didn't happen, that during World War II, the Jews weren't being exterminated. Folks, they were. They were. Even though we have people that are trying to rewrite history, you don't pay attention to them. 60,000 residents from just this one area were captured, they were deported, and they were murdered. 
and that happened during World War II. Believing that they had exterminated the Jewish stronghold in Thessalonica, they moved on. Well, as God always does, He reserves a remnant. And today there is still a Jewish stronghold in Thessalonica. People that came back after World War II, the synagogues are open again. And Judaism is there, as is Christianity. Now, with all of those things that we just saw on the screen, those are not the most significant parts of this community. The most significant thing about Thessalonica were the hot springs that exist there. They still are today. That's what drew people to come to that area. When the Greeks possessed the land, or actually prior to the Greeks, the name of that community wasn't Thessalonica. That happened under the Greek reign. The name of that community was Therma, captured the essence of the hot springs. It's like Quinn's Hot Springs or Fairmont Hot Springs, or if you go to British Columbia, Fairmont Hot Springs to our north as well. The hot springs, the hot water drew people into that area. That's why 200,000 people lived there, and that's why others traveled there, and that's why this community became the capital of the region of Macedonia, because everybody wanted to be near the hot springs. Interestingly, though, when the Apostle Paul got there, and he brought the message of Jesus with him, he had to confront a philosophy, a popular teaching that existed all through that community, really even beyond that community. That popular teaching, boy, it's hard to grasp as a Christian how it could take root. But for non-Christians, it, it made a lot of sense. This was their belief. There was no life after death. You live, you die, that's it. In the middle of the city of Thessalonica, there was actually an inscription that the Apostle Paul had to speak against outside of the Bible. Biblical history records this. This was the inscription right in the center of the city. After death, no reviving. After the grave, no meeting again. That's how they, they lived. And that's how they died. Now, for people that believe something like this, after death, no reviving, after the grave, no meeting again, it leads us to a place where we believe other things, like this. If it makes you happy, do it. Whatever feels good, do it. That's the mantra of humanism and hedonism. If it feels good, just do it. So you can imagine when the Apostle Paul came in there bringing a transforming message through Jesus, some of the people that were embracing this idea didn't like it because now all of a sudden he's giving a new purpose for which folks should live. That purpose was Jesus. And in the process of it, he started to show them that there really was hope beyond this life. That should have been incredibly encouraging to them. That we don't just have to make our way through the years that God gives us on the face of this earth with a belief, a catastrophic belief that when those years are over, that's it. Paul was saying that's not the case. Because Jesus rose from the grave, so will you. He brought hope into the midst of the hopeless. He was turning things around, but he was changing culture in the process. He was changing a, an entire mindset, and he was doing it so powerfully that it only took three weeks for the conviction of the Holy Spirit to flood into that area. Isn't that incredible? 
just three weeks. He took people who believed that you live and then you die and that's it to a place where they could say, you live for Christ. You end your life on this earth and you live on forever with Him. Just three weeks. Just three weeks. And everything started to change. Well, when Paul left that place, and he didn't really have a choice, they had to get him out of there. Did you catch that in Acts chapter 17, it said those that were conducting Paul, his handlers, Paul had to have people around him that would say, Paul, you need to leave and you need to leave now. Because he was a bold preacher, he was a man of faith, Paul didn't always have the mechanism for leaving. He needed other people to kind of shove him out the door. And they would do it driven by the Spirit of God. They would do it under the Lord's direction. Because Paul, though he might have had the desire to move on, he didn't always have the ability. And so his conductors, his handlers would come to him and say, We've got to go, and we have got to go now, Paul. Your life is in danger, and if you go down, the gospel goes down. Now we need to leave. And so Paul would leave with them. But in this particular case, he left behind Timothy and Silas. They weren't the same lightning rods that Paul was, so he was able to leave them there. And he gave them these instructions. It's laid out in Acts 17. You come to me as soon as you can. Let me know what's going on. But Paul had fallen in love with this place. He had fallen in love with these people, and he wanted to make sure they were cared for. So Timothy, Silas, you stay. The Bible would tell us that Paul would try two different times to get back to Thessalonica, and he wasn't able to. God blocked him from going back, more than likely because his face was on a poster at the post office. He was one of the most wanted men in all of Thessalonica and all of Macedonia, if Paul comes back, capture him. You let us know. Timothy was still there. Silas was still there. Until they came to Paul. Join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and listen to their report. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are, as if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another for all as, you do for you, as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul tucked that right in the middle of his first letter to him. I've heard about you. I've heard about you. You're remaining in the faith. What happened in those three short weeks while we were there, you're still living it. I'm so excited to hear that report, and, and don't think I've given up on trying to get to you, Paul says. I'm trying. I'm trying. I want to come back and see you. By all records, he was never able to do that. But these people in Macedonia, they never, never fell far from his heart. They were close to him. Paul 
loved them. He loved them the way God loved him. It's an amazing story. It's a remarkable account, and all of it happened in just three weeks. When Timothy and Silas got to Paul, he was in Corinth. He would actually say this of of that church to the people in Corinth. This is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Why don't you turn there with me so that you can see the thread that Thessalonica is through the writings of Paul. And even the writings of Luke in the book of Acts. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now, let me boil down for you what's happening here. While Paul was traveling the area, he was taking a collection for the church in Jerusalem. Because when that church began, thousands of people became a part of it almost overnight. Well, actually, in some regards, overnight. They left their homes and they moved to Jerusalem so that they could be near the teaching of the apostles. And the apostles had to start taking care of all their needs. They had to house them. They had to feed them. They had to clothe them. The needs of the church in Jerusalem were staggering. They were just staggering. So as Paul would travel and even as Peter would travel, they would take collections among these new churches that would go back to Jerusalem to support what was happening there. Well, Macedonia, even though today it is a cultural place, it is a place of commerce and industry, during those days it was struggling. That's what Paul was saying. Out of their extreme poverty, they begged us, they begged us to let them give to help spread the gospel and take care of the church. These new believers said, please, whatever you do, you let us help. So Paul took collections through all of Macedonia, and Thessalonica was the capital of the region. Through all of those places, he took this collection, and now here he is in Corinth telling these people how proud he is of them. It was like a father talking about his children. He loved these people, and he loved them deeply, and he'd only been with them three weeks three weeks. Everything else came to him as reports from Timothy and Silas. What an amazing, amazing traction that was gained right from the beginning. God wanted the gospel there for great purposes. He wanted Paul there for great purposes, and both were accomplished. When you get into his writings, and we will in the coming weeks, what you're going to find is that there is a common thread that goes through them. That common thread is used to bookend the first letter. Let me show it to you. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is verse 1. I want you to pay really close attention as we read this. Paul, Silvanus, which is Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, And the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you 
and peace. Now let's go to the fifth chapter. Just turn over a few pages. Look at verse 28, the last verse. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If you're a highlighter and underliner, would you highlight that word grace in both of those verses? Verse 1 of chapter 1 and chapter 5, verse 28. Highlight them. Because what you're going to see in both of those places is some of the depth that we discover when we choose to study grace in the Bible. And there is a lot of depth to it. The understanding of it, though, begins with great confusion. What is grace really? Let me show you some of the confusion as it exists in the Bible. We'll start with a passage like this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now in this particular case, when the Apostle Paul, the same author as the one that we just saw in 1 Thessalonians says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, he is talking about grace as a springboard unto salvation. For by grace you have been saved. Well, then we go to places like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, all of a sudden, we have the same word, grace, being used in a different application. In Ephesians chapter 2, it is a springboard unto salvation. In this last passage that we just read, it appears to be a sustaining gift from God. That leaves us with this question, which is it? If we're talking about the same word, the same word, grace, and we see two different applications of that word, which one is right? The answer is both. And as you study grace in the Bible, here's what you'll find. Look at how confusing this can be. There are 131 uses of grace in the English Standard Version of the Bible, 124 in the New Testament, 86 of which are from the Apostle Paul. And almost every one of them will leave you scratching your head wondering what grace really is. I sat with a group of men just before this service began and I threw that out to them and I said, hey, define grace for me. As we went around the room, we discovered that we had over 250, listen to this, 250 years of experience with Christianity, and still there was a confusion that surrounded grace. How do we really capture it? Because it is so deep, because it is so extensive, because it is so magnified in the Scriptures, it is hard to explain. And once you lay this confusion over it, like we just did, is grace something that leads to salvation or is grace a sustaining gift from God that gives us what we need when we need it? What is it really? That confusion just permeates Christianity. When in reality, the answer is, it is both. It is both. Grace is this huge, huge gift from God. 
I stumbled across an old definition of grace that I really like. I'd seen it years ago, and I hadn't memorized it and held on to it the way I should have. This is a great definition. I don't mean a good. This is a great definition of grace. Take a look. It is the foundation and the fountain of the gospel. It is the foundation and the fountain of the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, it's the foundation that Paul's talking about. He says, grace and peace to you. He's referring to their salvation. We are connected in Christ. But by the time we get to chapter 5, verse 28, he's talking about the fountain. God's giving you everything that you need to continue in your faith. Grace is the foundation and the fountain of the gospel. It is both. And you're going to see that as we make our way through these two letters. Because grace, though it is the bookends of the first letter, grace is the very thing that God would use to hold, or not God, Paul would use to hold together everything that he is writing to these wonderful, wonderful folks. It is also the thing that God uses to hold us together. God uses grace in our lives to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's really what grace is. Here, let's let's just put that up on the screen. Grace is God's gift to save us and sustain us. Said differently, that's God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Beginning in salvation, you cannot save yourself. You cannot work your way to heaven. You cannot buy your way to heaven. You cannot ride the coattails of anyone else to heaven. In salvation, you cannot do it on your own. It requires God. Not only does it require God, it requires His Son because God orchestrated it that way. You will never, listen to me, you will never pay attention to this. You will never find your way into salvation outside of God's Son. That's the only way it works. God did for us in sending His Son to die for us what we could not do for ourselves. And He did it because He loved us. He did it because He loved us. And then we find this sustaining power. God gives us what we need when we need it beyond ourselves. It is the fountain of grace as God pours out His love on us that we might do things, say things, know things that go beyond our own abilities, that's the fountain of grace as it is unleashed in your life. It is the foundation and the fountain of the gospel. And Paul will teach this church that. He'll do it from afar, but he has already laid all of the the groundwork for which he needs to build on in these letters. They are powerful, folks. They are powerful. I hope you'll be here with us through this study because there's something in it for you. You need to know that that there are three purposes in these letters. The first is to confirm the, the faith of these new believers. Paul will confirm it. He already is to the church in Corinth. He's saying, look at these folks. Even in his first letter as he writes back to them, he says, I'm so proud of you. Look at what you've done. All these people that have come against you and you have remained faithful and the church is growing. He's confirming the faith of these new believers. 
but he's also conditioning them for the battles that are ahead. He wants to make sure they're ready to face them because they will come. And then he does something that is incredibly interesting in both of these books. He has not only confirmed their new faith and conditioned them for the fight, but he comforts them in regard to the second coming of Christ. And what you will see as we make our way through First and Second Thessalonians is some of the most pointed teaching on God's love being poured out to us in the rapture of the church and the return of Jesus. Paul wanted them to know it. He wanted them to understand it. He has to correct some wrong thinking about it, but he makes sure that he gives them the hope that they need to know that there is life after death and to know that when all these struggles are over, you'll be in the presence of the Lord. It's a cool thing. And that's why I can say to you, I hope you'll be here because no matter where you're at in your walk with Christ, maybe you have yet to stand on that foundation of grace, then you need to hear the confirming words that Paul will share with these folks that he loves so much. Maybe that'll have the impact that you need like it would in a tent revival. Or maybe you're in the throes of some pretty significant spiritual battle. You need to hear what Paul says to the church in Thessalonica. Maybe there's some confusion in your life. Paul may very well clear that up for you as we go through this study. And maybe you have questions. Maybe you, you find yourself doubting the return of Jesus. Even doubting the resurrection. Doubting life after death. Then you need the comfort that Paul will offer to his friends. He'll offer the same to you. There is something in this for everyone. So I pray you'll be here. In fact, let me pray for you now as we wrap this up. And then we'll offer our invitation. Why don't you stand with me as we do that? Father in heaven, as we get into these books, we're going to see your faithfulness over and over and over again. I pray that we'll be inspired by it. I pray for those that need confirmation in their faith, that they'll find it. I pray for those that are struggling, that they'll find the conditioning that they need, the strength they need. And I pray, Father, for those that are really questioning, even doubting your return or their hope of eternal life. I pray they'll find it. Lord, there's so much in these two books that often gets overlooked sometimes because the name's hard to pronounce other times because they sit so far back in the Bible whatever the case we're going to pay attention and we're going to ask you to teach us Lord today I'm asking your spirit to do what only he can to work in the lives of your children Convict where necessary, Lord. Rebuke where necessary. Instruct and teach. Guide and direct. Lord, would you please once again do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Show us the grace of your Spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen.